Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother, Michael, to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we're discussing Danny Five and Eddard 13 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? It's fine. I don't love that you call them vague memories. I mean, they're definitely not precise memories. Yeah, but I like to think of them as like dreamlike memories. Okay, you know, that's fine. We can talk, you know, it's like prophecy, dream. I think it's like, I think it's like Sansa's dreams. Like yeah. you make them up. Yeah, but like, but still sane enough that I'm killing the animals, not just putting my hand on them. You know, when we first started this, I was a little worried about you having seen some of the TV show. And obviously it's it's so popular, it's hard to avoid. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, I realized that outside of like the the things that, you know, our parents would probably know, <laughs> you just have like I feel like you've mixed things together like you're pulling from like Star Wars or something like we're all over the place here you're like yeah I have a vague memory of like some sort of fight between Gandalf and Robert Baratheon and I'm like yeah keep running with that you know that sounds right well listen I just assume that the scene where they're in that car that's on the rails is coming up soon and then the electricity goes out and the dinosaurs come out of their cages and ah, okay. I got it. Okay. Yeah, you said car on the rails, and I was concerned because that's just a train. Is but that now I know what you, you know. <laughs> like, oh, that's the next chapter. He remembers too much. <laughs> yeah, shit. They invent electricity. <laughs> well, All right. So, uh, yeah, maybe we should get going with our Jurassic Park pod. I mean, oh, uh, Game of Thrones. My. Yeah, that's right. Uh, something or other. So, I think I think it's important <laughs> to give a little context of where we left off, right? Because literally the last chapter that we read, and it, yeah, last chapter that we read leading into this was Ned, Ned 12. And this this was a huge and crucial chapter because he figured out the mystery. He came. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. He came to understand what's going on here. And spoilers from a more direct and concrete memory from this chapter last week uh, is uh, it turns out Robert Robert's kids are not his kids. What? Cersei's been sleeping with her brother Jamie, but I get it. Weird. He's so dreamy. Yeah, but, he is pretty hot. Yeah, hottie, hottie with the body. But with that, you said, know, this is a good reminder. But you know, we're going across the narrow sea to start, so none of this is even relevant. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> uh, really, if people listen for the production value of the preparation that goes into these episodes. That's you know what that is fair. I will say okay. Why don't we discuss where we last saw Daenerys uh, since that's been a while? (laughs) Uh, Okay, that's fair. But I do want to stress that we had a big cliffhanger with Ned. Yeah, and and in Michael's defense here, it's it's been two weeks since we last recorded, uh, so we you know we skipped the release date. So it was good reminder for us where did we come from? Uh, But yeah, last time we saw Ned, and now for something completely different. And we're back with Daenerys. And Daenerys is just <laughs> killing it as Pregger's queen wife, uh, like Paul Drogo, whatever they're called, the Dothraki. You nailed it. That's Pregger's queen wife. Yep. Uh, we know that she is super pregnant right now. We know that she's still hanging out in the, I'm looking at my book, Vast Dothrak. Dothrak. Yeah, close enough. 
Woo! I usually go with Vase Dothrak, you know, but you you killed it. You nailed it. Perfect. Yeah, well, not all of us learned Klingon as a child. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, Again, you know, now we're back to this again. We're jumping all over the place. But <laughs> I just want to be very clear. Make sure you know that is a very different series. Yeah, but it is a made-up language. Okay, fair. So, okay, but with that said, we have left Daenerys. <laughs> Daenerys has sort of been following a very strong and very direct storyline for the past several, several chapters. She's becoming more and more entwined and, and a part of Dothrak culture and mm-hmm. community. She has really stepped into this role as the Khaleesi, as the, the sort of queen of this, and is taking a firm leadership stand both in her position and within, within this community. We yeah. have also seen that her brother Viserys is more like continues to be like more and more of a scumbag that he is and is just a demanding kind of whiny brat i yeah. want my my where are my soldiers i bought my soldiers you were the 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 you know the fiat that has bought me my soldiers you being daenerys uh and and he's just getting whinier and whinier and just more and more inappropriate and there seems to be sort of a growing distance between him and daenerys more and more as we've kind of watched their relationship she keeps trying but at the same time he keeps being like like just intransigent about his opinions absolutely and that that growing gap between them i think is really the central piece of this chapter here it's it's translates throughout um and so let's uh we'll dive right into the chapter and just remind me i know you just said it but this is daenerys five four daenerys five daenerys five um so with daenerys five and, and i'll well, why don't I actually just jump right into it? We start at a ritual ceremony done for what I assume is Khaleesi's, uh, yeah, not every pregnant right. woman. Um, but <laughs> this would be a lot of production value for every birth. <laughs> well, the reason being that we start with her holding, basically given a, a horse's heart uh, mm-hmm. placed into her hands that she needs to eat. She needs to eat all of it. Uh, she, there, we go into some details about how she's kind of trained for this. Uh, yeah, it's you know, like she, it's like a fear factor situation. Yeah, she practiced eating strips of horse heart meat and you know drinking blood so she wouldn't. And basically, what we find here is that this is just a very this is a big insignificant cultural part of the Dothraki, as far as we can tell. Uh, for the Khaleesi to, you know, who is pregnant, this is to, uh, if I understood it correctly, to give strength to the the growing child in the womb, as well as mm-hmm. leads to the ability for these, and I forget their names, but the older women, you know, uh, uh, the seers, if you will, of the, the Dosh Khaleen, the Dosh Khaleen, to eventually leads them to do some prophecy, prophesizing as well. Yeah, uh, I think it's really interesting throughout this whole first part. I mean, you're 100% right. The ceremony consists of, of eating the horse heart with a lot of chanting, and then it transitions into a, a prophetic area. And it goes into such detail throughout mm-hmm. all of this that's so visceral. And it's fascinating because the stated reasons for this, like you mentioned, are about the strength of the kid. But it seems so clear to me that the strength of the mother is a huge part of this as well. Mm-hmm. And and we see, you know, Khal Drogo really looking at her with pride and seeing, trying to see her falter. But the whole thing is she's not allowed to flinch. She's not allowed to throw up. She has to get through this gross, difficult thing that is meant to be gross and difficult to prove her strength and through that, the strength of her people, these people that she leads. Uh, it clearly reflects on the son, it clearly reflects on the father, and it reflects on her and 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 the Dothraki as a whole. And I think that that emphasis on the visceral, bloody, gross, gory nature of this in particular with a pregnant woman and the nausea that comes from that, I think really translates 
This is meant to be a test. This is meant to be a trial that she has to pass through to be one of them. And I'll take it even one step further. And I really found this while I was reading it this week is there's something wonderfully sort of anthropological about all of this. And I say this as the viewer, not, you know, the story's not written anthropologically by any means, but we've experienced not in this world, but in the other, you know, area of the world, right? And King's Landing and even Winterfell and, and sort of where these seven kingdoms are. Uh, there's a sort of a, a sense of modernism in, when it comes to some of these cultural things. We know Ned goes to the gods' mm-hmm. rooms. We know that Catelyn, you know, has more of a faith or whatever, but this feels very modern, borderline secular into religious or or even, you know, the 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 you know, the, the more religious characters themselves are very much participating in modern era type things. Whereas this feels like, wow, you're taking a step into a deeply, you know, rich culture and history. And just props to George R. R. Martin on that. I think that it just, this is a culture that he seems to have thought through very, very rigorously. And it just yeah. shows. And and I just love, it goes into some of the 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 sort of cultural understandings as well. There's, there's these wonderful words that are used that I'm not even going to pretend to try to say, <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of storytelling. The Dothraki believe the stars were horses made of fire, a great herd that galloped across the sky by night. There's a lot of depth to not just this singular practice, but this religion and this community that sort of stems around it. I just had a lot of fun reading that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think generally speaking, and we've talked about this before, George R. R. Martin sometimes struggles when he gets away from the more Eurocentric mm. versions, which is is more the word that I use compared to modern. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. Westerosi yeah. society, I don't disagree with you on the religious versus secular side of things from what we've seen so far, but it's very clearly a medieval society, you know, castles, knights, horses. Um, and here we're transitioning into a nomadic tribal people. Yeah, uh, they're they're clearly meant to be non-white. Um, the way they speak, the gods they believe in, the way they approach these things, and and he runs into some flaws with that, in particular later on. But I think these periods where we're immersed with the Dothraki and in their society, and in particular in the city of Vistothrak, feels very fleshed out, very lived in. And I I absolutely agree. And I think part of that. We had a discussion way back in Danny 2, I think it was, about seeing the Dothraki through her eyes, which was very mm-hmm. othering, her coming to them for the first time and seeing these people who scared her, and the transition into us seeing them through her eyes as a full people, as a real people, as people with traditions and a culture that is all its own and and uh, fully whole really connects with her ability to move into that realm and start to connect more with it and become a part of that as opposed to an outsider. A hundred percent. You even said it a little bit earlier just now, but uh, I think it's really worth just pointing at how hard Daenerys is working to do this. She mm-hmm. is committed. She's really, she's not just doing it for for the, the show of it and the glamour and trying to work, you know, to get her brother, these soldiers. She's doing this. She she is very much a committed part of it. And it shows, and it shows, I think, not just by her actions, but how those around her, the the whatever you call them, the the Vashkaline. Yeah. Uh, you know, that Vashkaline. <laughs> uh, but also just sort of appreciating her doing that as well. We learn a little bit more uh, as the chapter continues, right? She eats this heart. She does it successfully. There's a lot of cheering and praise. A prince rides inside me is a lot of the cheering that happens. A prince rides inside inside her. Uh, We get into that sort of prophesizing. There's sort of uh, branches Mm -hmm. are lit on fire. Smoke goes up and the smoke is kind of red by these older seers. Uh, We also learn, by the way, which I like... um, that these older women, these, these, the Vashkalin are 
Khaleesi's the am I saying that totally wrong? I can see it's Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. It's a D. <laughs> That's right. Uh no, I know you're they're in Vastothrak, and the women oh, are the okay, Dosh Khalin. Okay. Yeah. Dosh Khalin. Um, there you go. But we find out that they are all former Khaleesis themselves to older, yeah. uh, you know, Kalazars who who have have are no longer with us, if you will. Yeah. Um, so so after the call passes away, they come to Vastothrak to serve in this. Uh, additional role so we've kind of been hearing about them as the crones they live in this society apart but also central to the dothraki and uh and so now we know where they come from as well and that you know this is a potential future for daenerys there's this uh smoke reading that's performed and we find that the reaction from the the the, the doge is basically uh the prince is riding and he shall be the stallion who mounts the world and yeah. this becomes a chant that we uh, that we hear and i gotta say the imagery is funny to me it is it definitely is you know we get it we get a translation of it here effectively that he's the messiah conqueror that's going to unite all of the peoples but the idea that uh it feels very modern to use the word we were just discussing that the image of the genghis khan is somebody who's fucking the world is <laughs> uh yeah you know that it's not wrong it, it's it is quite also, literal for it and, and i agree but it also fits the uh the attitude of this culture as well pretty well uh-huh. this is a pretty ag- aggressive in all areas type of culture and uh yeah it doesn't cool. feel out of place for me as much as it's it's just more explicit i think mm-hmm. we have so much yeah. sexual imagery throughout um religions in our world i i was just learning recently a uh not having grown up christian but the wound that jesus takes is depicted for like a period of a thousand years worth of art as it just looks like a georgia o'keefe painting like it is it is straight up a vagina Um, so and like there's a lot of written text on that and what that (laughs) means about the femininity of god and of the rebirth and all of those things and how that works into things but like yeah, mm-hmm. 1500 years, you know, these artists in the Middle Ages knew what they were painting. Uh, like that, I'm just going to do a subtle. quick Google search right now. Look at your porn later, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Pornhub category that I just have not gone to. I've just never been interested in No? That. Okay, well, how strange. But anyway, it's, it's I, I say bring this up to say that the, the sexual imagery of the Messiah and of uh, the birth, yeah. rebirth, death cycle is definitely not new. This one just feels a little more in your face than maybe we're used to. But we do, yeah, it, it, in your face, it, it definitely is uh, and shall continue to be. But this is something that everyone starts chanting as well. The stallion who mounts the world. It's it, And I'll stress, hyper-positive. You know, if there was once an, an earlier Daenerys chapters of fear from her or a concern projected it onto her that she wouldn't fit in, that's not really here anymore. She really has stepped into this role, which is just cool. She's a badass. Yeah, yeah. Hyper positive. It's also worth noting. You know, there's no doom associated with the Messiah mm-hmm. and the you know the Christian version that we have of the the end of days. This is unequivocally a good thing. The Dothraki are going to conquer, and they will ride behind the stallion that mounts the world, the prince that that is coming and uh and that they have through her and he is going to be their leader that is going to take over everywhere and unite all of the peoples of the world into a single Kalasar. uh it's worth noting that in the prophecy that this crone recites we have this line here behind him is Kalasar covers the earth men without number the bells in his hair will sing his coming and the milkmen in the stone tents will hear his name so with all of the focus that that Daenerys and Viserys in particular have had in conquering 
Westeros, I thought this was notable. The, the stone tents seem very clearly a reference to castles, and the milkman we know is something that they've referred to Jorah as a milkman before. This is mm-hmm. explicitly a reference to those Western peoples. We are going to go and take over your home. I'm glad you actually pointed that out, because while stone tents did jump out to me, milkman, I thought, I was like, what? <laughs> it's a skin color about? reference, Michael. It's like, a skin color reference. <laughs> there's a whole nother culture of milkmen in this but no idea they deliver and milk left and right. I sure hope they're um, not lactose intolerant. We do find out also Danny is questioned to, by uh, by sort of the, the leader of these Doshkalin and uh, and saying, well, what are you going to name the child? And she says, I'm going to name him Rago, which yes. I don't think I'm pronouncing well, but Rago, Rago, but like Rhaegar, basically named after her older brother, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh-huh. characters. Yeah, and it's kind of like the Dothraki fashion. We've met a ton of Dothraki that have the names that end in O. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. all of them, actually. It's it's at least close, all of the men. Uh, so this is really, it, it ties in well with stuff we've talked about before, about her marrying the two cultures. We mm-hmm. talked about it with the Kingsguard and the Blood Riders, kind of meshing those together. Here we have a Westerosi name pronounced in the Dothraki style, which I think is just such a perfect little moment uh, of summary for Daenerys. We have quickly after that, Khal Drogo uh, turns to her at one point very soon thereafter and says, what is meaning name Rego? <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I just like, but uh, but Danny's been teaching him a little bit. Yeah, he's, he's getting better. Tongue. But it, and, and I do, and I really want to stress it. I was saying about Daenerys really becoming entwined in this culture, but she's, it's it's emerging together much more than a sort of like a, a assimilate, total assimilation from one Absolutely. to the other. And I think it's, it's been great. It's been a really mature character to watch her all her entire her entire process throughout this. So it's just been really fun. With that said, the uh, this this cultural moment continues. She's eaten the horse's heart and performed that well. The the prophesizing has happened with the smoke. They now are riding over to what the Dothraki call the womb of the world, which I think mm-hmm. is just a big lake. Yes. Uh, where it's expected for the Khaleesi to go in and kind of bathe herself and cleanse herself, get the blood off of her from this heart, and all of this. We have a, what I think is a really weird, very public and very short sex yeah. scene. Uh, yeah, so she, she she comes out of the water and uh, we get a reference that Khal Drogo has a boner and grabs her and they have very quick sex uh, just in front of everyone before and moving Danny on to the next And Danny could see the shape of his manhood pressing through his horsehide trousers. Yeah, you know, it's a little little romance novel moment that we have here. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, though, because we've talked about the rebirth cycle and uh, of the Messiah that we have kind of showing up through here and the, the Christian imagery that we have going on. And it's worth noting that Danny goes and immerses herself, uh, has a, a, a mikvah bathing, if you will, in the womb of the world <laughs> and emerges on the other side, goes through this metaphorical rebirth. And that immediately transitions into sex, that these all are one and the same or two sides of a coin to this process of her becoming one with these peoples and having that rebirth. And I think this moment, we've talked so much about the progression of her as a character, this rebirth into the community of the Dothraki, who are so very public and are, uh, you know, have sex in public, do these things we learned earlier in front of the Kalasar regularly, or at least under the stars, it's a metaphorical moment of her shedding the past that came before and moving into this new life, this rebirth into this new life from the womb of the world. 
I like that. And I'll add to you that, you know, we, we laugh a little bit about this, this sort of weird little sex scene that shows up. But the fact is, I found it really awesome. And, and, and uh, like, it fit very well to see how much yeah. this Cal Drogo is attracted to this woman. He's so proud yeah. of her for all she's just done. This really is this really wonderful communion between the two of them. She, she's there. She's part of it. And, and it, it shows it shows through these actions, which I just thought was fun. Yeah, it, it's also good to just think about when we first met him through Daenerys's eyes. You know, he's never shed any aspect of that martial, violent mm -hmm. nature, that kind of, uh, of danger that emanates off of him throughout this text. But when Danny first met him, she was terrified of him. Uh, yeah. She saw him from across the room at Illyrio's party and then again at the wedding. And it was this cold eyed, dark eyed man who couldn't say anything to her. And so seeing this warmth, this love, coming off of him without losing any aspect of that other side to him really shows how far she's come and how far their relationship has grown since those early days. The uh, process of this, of this moment, of this celebration, of this, you know, uh, uh, anointment, if you will, this prophesizing and all these things that are happening uh, moves into a party. Uh, there's a celebration that happens now. So the service is kind of over and now they're moving into the sort of communal celebration at what, which point she starts to look for her brother, who she's not finding, basically. Uh, she's looking for yeah, Sarah. He didn't come. He, he just being a dick. Um, <laughs> but she does spy Jorah Mormont and actually invites him up to sit with her a little bit and, and starts to chat mostly about her brother. Uh, you know, trying where is he and what's going on? And, and Jorah shares some facts saying, you know, I think he went to get drunk, basically, with the, with the white men. <laughs> you know, he went out to the right. market out of here to get drunk. Uh, yeah, specifically the Western market. So we talked mm -hmm. about the structure of Vaistothrak, where they have a Western market and the Eastern market, and each kind of trades with the peoples in that direction. So the Western market is where all of the people from the free cities, and if there is anybody from Westeros, where all of those people are going to be. So it makes sense that he's trying to seek out some form of community, some sort of people that he has a connection to, because the Dothraki have not worked for him in the way that they work for her. Uh, we find out even more too that uh, Jorah shares that you know not only has he gone there for wine and to get drunk and for his community, but also to potentially try to buy some cell swords to you know recruit some cell swords to be part of his right. army that he keeps talking about. To which Daenerys says, "Well, how? He has no money." And Jorah says, "Well, he planned to steal your dragon eggs. That's what he was going to do." <laughs> uh, to which she's kind of shocked by this. Where and and I'll say, I mean, like like I get it, I get the character and. And all this but it's like man girl like at this point like what what do you think <laughs> you know yeah uh well it's interesting because her reaction is like i would have given them to him if he yeah. asked and i i wonder how much of the shock is i can't believe he would do this versus why didn't he just come talk to me you know uh or or even why didn't why did he try to sneak around and hide from me i mean you think about again how far she's come from their relationship at the beginning of the book where if this was four Danny chapters ago and he wanted the dragon eggs, he'd slap her and call her a whore and say, I'm going to take those because everything that's yours is mine. Right. So there are a bunch of different reasons why I think she would express some sort of surprise at this. And only one of them is, I can't believe my asshole brother was being an asshole again. I'll say too, that there's a, I, th I think there's a little bit of really fun character. I don't know about development, but insight that happens here about her Daenerys and about Viserys as well. I think that on the one hand, you have this this woman, Daenerys, this young girl slash woman who is maturing and growing and becoming like really moving forward, whereas Viserys is stuck in a little bit of arrested development. He's he's not 
understanding how things are changing and maturing and moving. He is not moved with the times. I think also that we have this, you know, we we are sort of shown uh, very, very quickly Daenerys's youth. She doesn't realize how valuable these eggs are. You mm-hmm. know, they're just stone, she says. And Jorah Mormont is quick to point out, well, so are diamonds, <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> uh, which I just thought was a, a good point. Um, Jorah. Yeah, is, he specifically says they're they're extraordinarily more expensive than any jewel. Like, yeah. These are very rare. It doesn't very matter if, if they're petrified. Uh, they could buy him all the entire army that he wants to take back Westeros. I will say, though, that that comment bothered me because why would Illyria like like there, there's something a little incongruent here mm-hmm. if these stones could buy the whole army then why were these a gift to Daenerys from Illyria why weren't they just used to buy the army <laughs> yeah you know that's a fair question and that gets into what is Illyria doing and planning yeah. and what's his actual goal here and that that raises all sorts of questions that we don't necessarily know but you're absolutely right you know if we have this marriage price of Khal Drogo is going to bring the army. Why isn't Illyrio paying that for him, for right. instance? You know, there are plenty of other ways to have approached this. And I think maybe we can just leave that as related to unspoken motivations, but also sure. a part of it is just, you know, people weren't thinking in terms of that. It's harder to buy an army with yeah, yeah fancy stones than it is to get the Dothraki as allies through a marriage pact. I mean, you know, maybe it just wasn't practical in that sense. Yeah, and that's and that's fine it was a small a small thing i will say that sir jora continues to be kind of loose-lipped about his feelings around viserys yeah you know this is i think he's he's quick to to continue to say like this is not the person who's going to control an army this is like like he's he's a little sort of the uh the man of knowledge to this young girl who's like why would he do this it's like because he sucks like he's he's a shitty guy there's one line in particular that I really like here where, where Danny says he, you know, I'd give him the stones if he asked for them, the eggs. He is my brother and my true king. And Sir Jorah responds, he is your brother. Yep. Sir Jorah acknowledged. Nothing about the king. Just going to ignore that part. Uh, and, and the disrespect of it, I think, is pretty blatant. I think also that there's a fun uh, sort of technical side of the writing here that starts here that and, and we watch this progress through the chapter and we'll get to it as we do it but uh, there's an almost disrobing of this character of Viserys and it starts here he's my brother and my one true king well he's your brother and soon it will say the man who was once her brother you know and, and it, mm-hmm. it, there's a there's a distancing and a continued distancing and I think it speaks a lot more towards Viserys's inability to continue moving forward with where things are than right. it has to do with Daenerys moving away. But we'll we'll get more into that. Yeah, I, I think that that's really where the metaphorical imagery of the rebirth comes in so strongly for me, that this is her final transition, her final step mm-hmm. away from the life that came before and into this life that she is, into this community that she is joining. And, and that's really the part of this conversation between her and Jorah that really stuck out to me is this last step that we haven't quite gotten to, where Danny's response to Jorah's kind of disrespect towards Viserys is to explain where her feelings towards him come from and why she might want to give the eggs away. He raised her. He was her only family and the one who took care of her and brought her up as a from a, from a baby. Um, after everybody else was dead, she says, I would never have so much as known their names if Viserys had not been there to tell me. Uh, I was completely alone 
except for him. And so, you know, as terrible as he might be, at least I had someone. And Jorah's response here, which I think is the perfect coda onto this transition of of Daenerys away from her life with Viserys is, you're not alone anymore. Now you have a community, you have a people, you have the Dothraki. And that's really such a sad way to think about Viserys and, and who he's become and the way he's acting. I mean, you're nailing it. It's 100% right to talk about arrested development and his inability to grow and to, to transition. And this puts such a perfect point on why Viserys had nobody. He had nothing. Everything was stripped from him by Robert's Rebellion. And his entire being was devoted to keeping himself and his sister alive along with the story of who they are and the story mm -hmm. of who they could be and while danny has gone through this complete inversion of self from somebody who is fully isolated and only exists in any sense in any relation to other people as an outgrowth of her brother into somebody who is the pinnacle and the embodiment of this dothraki community and now viserys is totally alone He's completely alone. So, of course, what he does is he tries to go and get drunk with other Westerosi people who he can say, I'm your true king at, and have no other relationship to. Right. It also really highlights the importance of that sex scene that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. That Danny is fully communal now. She is fully existing in this space. Even having sex with her husband between you know the princess and the prince is done as a public act. Right. And, and that's why I think that scene doesn't just kind of stick out as a sore thumb to me, but has mm -hmm. some broader uh, motif, some broader thematic meaning in this chapter. I will say that this touches on something that I that does rub me a little bit the wrong way and and this is more to do with the writing style and 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 this like like high level sort of meta comment than, than it's specific. a repeated use of the word manhood <laughs> no there's never okay. enough <laughs> i Sorry. need more um you need more but, manhood okay. but what i what i what i want to get at is that there's all the characters that we meet throughout this entire book so far uh while all of their scenarios and their scenes and, and what they're going through really work, and I'm saying this very broadly, um, there is a, a sense, like, like it's almost as if these characters have been plopped into this moment, much more than I believe their backstory to get them there, that they would act this way. Oh, for interesting. Daenerys and to, for Daenerys, who, let's just stick with how it says it in the book, right? She was 14 or 15 in the book. Right. But for it to be 14 or 15 years of a shit brother like this or whatever it is, like there's almost a bit of Stockholm syndrome that goes into that at some point. And I'm not seeing a lot of that here. Mm -hmm. Same thing with King Robert and Joffrey. Like Joffrey's a real shit of a child. You know what I mean? Like, like it's not just like, like this sort of, I'll ignore. And I could see it. I, obviously, I'm saying this in a very strict way and, and it's not yeah. always like this. Same thing with Ned. It's been 15 years since the war. How he's really not had any reason to wonder what's going on down in the South and how yeah. bad things are. It, it's I get it, different world, different things, but there is a little bit of that here in some of these things that show up. Yeah. There's a little bit of I convenience think, that comes out of characters' opinions about things. I, I think the critique makes a lot of sense for me with Danny, uh, which is good since mm -hmm. that's the chapter we're in, where we pick up with her in her first chapter, and it kind of feels like she's becoming a person for the first mm -hmm. time she's becoming a an agent uh someone with agency and making sure. her own choices for the first time in her life and i think part of that can be explained by the age but not a full amount you know there you talk about aria who is significantly younger and has already started having that growth even before we met her and i think kind of kind of has that fleshed out already and danny has i mean i even just said it a moment ago in a more positive sense has existed as 
an extension of Viserys's person up until when we meet her at the start of the book. With respect to the older generation, I think what you're seeing is a lot of arrested development coming out of the war. Mm-hmm. And we've talked so much about the way trauma has stunted Robert. And certainly mm-hmm. there is some level of that for Ned. And I think that's intentional. I, I think these are people who are stuck in this and could really benefit from some really intense therapy sessions of unpacking what it was <laughs> they went through in losing their loved ones and in fighting these fights and, and uh, meeting out the violence that they did and really trying to find a way to internalize that and work with it and get past it so they can be healthy people again because that that's just not who we're seeing we're not seeing characters yeah, that's particularly fair. capable of growth uh that's that's a fair that's a fair point um with that said getting back to the chapter uh Daenerys and Sir Jorah are chatting and talking about where Viserys is and sure enough here's Viserys Viserys shows up uh and he is drunk and belligerent as he normally is not always drunk but definitely always belligerent but more yes. than that he is wearing his sword which is a yeah. huge cultural no-no uh we also the... get a bunch of references which we've skimmed past before now about mm-hmm. how that means death here uh so that was right. that was very nicely seated throughout this chapter we got a reference to the merchants in the marketplaces will choke thieves to death they have right. big strong guys so that they're not shedding any blood right. in the process of executing these criminals so yeah it's we're ready we're primed to say as soon as he shows up with it on like ah oh, shit this is bad and Daenerys knows it's bad as well she I think what's the line here I, I marked it a sense of dread closed around her heart <laughs> like like yeah. we, we she knows what's about to happen as well um I'll add too that I think that it's like wonderfully uh, compounded with just how great things have gone for Daenerys in this cultural moment. You know, this is this is not these two foreigners trying to ingratiate themselves. This is one guy who can't get with it. She, you know, she's at the yeah. top of her game right now, and uh, and he's not there for it. Uh, but uh, Viserys shows up. He is drunk. He is wearing metal. <laughs> which you're not supposed to be doing. Uh, and he is violent. Uh, he makes his way. He he draws the sword. He waves it around. He's, he's mm-hmm. where's my sister? I want my sister No one now. eats before the king. That's right. How dare you even be eating? Uh, and, uh, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm skipping over some of the specifics here and happy to go back. But basically, he makes his way over to Daenerys, sword out with sword against her pregnant belly in mm-hmm. front of Cal Drogo, in front of this entire community that just was part of this uh and and basically says like i'm going to like i i need my my i want my crown already i paid for my crown right. where's my army where's my crown and specifically if i don't get paid for take, you yep i will take you back uh but they can keep the the baby dothraki baby that you're carrying i'll cut it out of you and leave it here with them I'll say I think a really wonderful uh, illustration of Daenerys's own growth is uh, she's very afraid in this moment, but it's not because of Viserys's actions towards her. Right. Uh, it's because of what she knows all of this means for Viserys. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is she, she's terrified because ha- she knows what having a sword drawn a sword at all means. You know, she knows that she's the queen. She <laughs> knows this is just it, none of this is OK. And basically, Khal Drogo has had enough. And he says, you know what? Fine. If you want, you want your crown, I'm going to give you your crown and it's time. And, uh, and he gets up followed by his, I forget the name of who they are, his, his body men who have like blood riders, yeah. his blood riders. And they get up 
And Viserys is great. Finally, he lowers his sword. Give me what I need. And these blood riders grab his wrists and shatter them uh, in, in their vice grips. Yeah, and take the sword away from him. Yep. And Khal Drogo then takes off. And I thought this was fun. I don't know if it was mentioned before, but he takes off his belt, which seems to be adorned with gigantic golden medallions. Yeah, I, I figured it was just like made out of like gold links. But yeah, either way, ton of gold. Like, Each one was a quarter of a pound. Blah, blah. I was like, but he goes, he uh, he fills like, I think it's a, it's a stew pot is emptied yeah. for him. And he tosses his whole belt in there, which boils down the gold. I was so exceptionally curious if uh, like a, a big campfire that you're cooking over would be able to melt gold like that. I have no idea. I did not look this up. I assume it's all scientifically verified in this book. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, but with that said, uh, Paul Drogo takes takes this boiling vat and dumps it over Viserys's head. Yeah. And his screams are unhuman uh, and uh, just terrifying beyond belief. But Daenerys, the chapter ends with Daenerys basically having a little bit of distance from it. She's not feeling it closely. And she kind of, she says, this is the concluding line of the chapter, but, you know, he was no dragon, Danny thought, uh, curiously calm. He, can, he Fire cannot kill a dragon. Uh, and I just, I just love this for all the, the, the bluster that is Viserys and you're, don't wake the dragon, all of this. Daenerys comes to realize that, you know what, like, you know, you are this human, you are not the story, you are not what this right. tale is, because this shouldn't have affected you if it was. Uh, and I'm I'm personally excited to see her kind of freed from this anchor. I want to see where her character is going. I want to see what happens. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is interesting. It's our first really major death that we've seen, I, I guess, other than uh, maybe I'd say John Aaron at the start, but that mm -hmm. was an off-screen thing. Off, yeah, we didn't see it. So. Um, and it's so fascinating to think about what this means for Danny, both in terms of where she's going and in terms of the effect it'll have on her. It's great that, that we end on curiously calm for her because we keep getting references throughout this sequence as Drogo is making fun of Viserys and as as things escalate over time, that Danny feels nothing. She increasingly feels nothing. She starts off scared and then gradually the fear leaves her as, like you were saying earlier, Viserys is othered. Viserys is turned mm -hmm. into not her brother as we go. And there's one moment that breaks that entire pattern over the course of the whole thing where Drogo hears that Viserys threatened to cut out the baby. He responds and he Viserys asks Danny, what did he say? And she says, uh, he says, you shall have a splendid golden crown that men shall tremble to behold, which is the perfect way to say it, because mm -hmm. that is, in fact, what happens. But in response, Viserys smiles. He's he's genuinely happy. He finally hears what he wanted to hear. That, and he that was feels all he's I been heard, right? Like, yeah. finally, they're, I'm getting through to them. And it says specifically that that smile is what tore at her afterwards. Mm. It's It's the moment. It's the moment where the the potential catharsis of a villain character, the abusive asshole older brother dies, where that is just being disrupted, whether it's through the references earlier to Viserys's care for Danny, if you can even call it that, and what that means for how lonely he is, how alone he is. Mm -hmm. And then here, where what he is looking for is some sort of acknowledgement of him, not through her, not, you know, as part of Dothraki culture, but as who he wishes he could be. And it's that sadness to it, that kind of twist of the knife that we get that impacts Danny. It's not his death, which he had coming and which he brought upon himself, but it's it's the sadness that goes along with that and the sadness kind of inherent to his life. 
like that. Um, I will say here at the end of the chapter, like as I think about these characters and where they're going, I'm a little interested in how this storyline for Daenerys is going to mature. Mm -hmm. uh, Viserys was the guiding force and we need an army to take over. Right, uh, to go to yeah, Westeros. Yeah, to go to Westeros. But I don't know if Daenerys feels that way. Her home is the, the house with the red door that we've talked about ages ago. Uh, yeah. That's not the keep, is it? Down in the, no. Down no, 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 no. That was a reference to where, you know, like when she yeah. was a small child in right. Bravos. So we have seen some references to her starting to think of home, meaning the Seven Kingdoms, and starting to think of herself as a leader, not home in the personal childhood comfort sense, but home mm -hmm. in the sense of this is my destiny. This is what I'm here to do. But I think that's a great question for you, uh, which I, it's twofold and they kind of cut against each other. On the one hand, you've said before that it would be interesting to see, and you kind of almost feel like this storyline for Daenerys is going to involve her growth with the Dothraki and her spending time in this world rather than in the other one. So do you think that that's a possibility, something that's on the table, that the loss of Viserys kind of diverts her from heading back to Westeros? And the second half of this is, if not, what? how does she possibly end up pointed back in the right direction without him around? I don't know in a weird way Viserys's role has been an incredible one to keep us kind of pointed like a compass towards Westeros right uh, you know I don't I'm honestly sort of like 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 uh simply curious you know yeah. about what the next Daenerys chapter is going to be like this this sort of annoyance is now gone uh, I assume she's going to have the baby. I know that there's still like command from the seven kingdoms for, for her to be murdered. Right? Yeah. That's, that's like, kind of the Chekhov's gun that's still out there. Exactly. Uh, and I know that it, it, that'll actually be mentioned in the next chapter that we'll talk about in just a moment as well. But, you know, I don't like it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. It, it would surprise me because it would make for a boring storyline in this book, but it wouldn't surprise me if she just lives her life as the Khaleesi and just kind of follows Khal Drogo mm -hmm. around. Like she's part of this community, the, a young girl who never had community was born in right. exile, you know, like, so be it. I, I do think maybe the one thing to point in the other direction is the child's name. She's showing a connection to past and lineage and things like that. But other than that, I really don't know how, why, or where this, this story is about to go. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Uh, and and I'm with you, you know, the kind of happiness that she has being a part of the Dothraki and leading the Dothraki seems to contrast with everything that came before for her. So to the extent she's going to leave it, you know, from a story perspective, that seems like the obvious prediction that she's going to head back towards the rest of our characters at some point in time. But it is a, a giant open question how that happens if it does. Yeah. With that said, we move back to King's Landing, where we go into Ned 15. 13. 13. So close. Yeah, we've got a, a streak here, which will uh, continue next week and be the last one. of. We've had Ned chapters every week for a while now. Well, we do love ourselves some Ned. Uh, with that said, this chapter moves pretty quick. <laughs> like, yeah. There are some very large and specific things that happen in this chapter that become very important. We start with Ned being woken up, sort of the, uh, the a bang on, on his door, but he's waking up from a dream. Yes. Uh, he's dreaming of being but in the- I thought you were going to skip the dream. We never skip yeah, dreams, Michael. Skip the dream, Daniel. Uh, 
but we have him in this dream walking in the crypts underground at Winterfell. He uh, he comes to facing his father, his father, brother, and sister. If I'm not mistaken, yes, uh, yeah, that's correct. And uh, Liana's statue whispers to him, "Promise me, Ned." She wears a garland of blue roses, pale blue roses, and her mm-hmm. eyes wept blood. Yeah, pretty hardcore. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm as a reader, I'm getting annoyed i want <laughs> answers like yeah like i'm sick of these allusions uh to, to situations and things that i know nothing about yeah uh, i mean I, I think the simple explanation here uh that that you already have is there is a recurring scene from ned's past with the tower of joy situation and with liana's death that is very clearly top of mind for him over sure. the course of the last uh, however many chapters really dating back to the very beginning of the book, but in particular in the last few King's Landing chapters that we've seen, this just keeps coming up. These pale blue roses, the promise he made to her, the yeah. blood, the bloody bed, her death, all of that surrounding that um, is really taking up a lot of his brain space. That is a fact. There's another um, aspect to this dream that you skimmed past that I just find interesting and wanted to, to reference to see if you had any thoughts on before we keep moving. He walks through the crypts and passes through the Kings of Winter, which we've seen before, and they watch him pass with eyes of ice, and the dire wolves at their feet turned their great stone heads and snarled. It's a very hostile environment for the the patriarch of the Stark family Mm. in the Stark crypts. It's strange to see that kind of imagery associated with his presence in a place that should belong to him did you have any thoughts on that is there you know something that he's getting disapproval for is there something he did is this maybe something that dates back you know through his life does he have this relationship with the past of the stark house it's odd that's interesting i it didn't strike me as anything more than like like dream scenario uh, right, like it added context to it, it's a menacing dream, but there's a lot of menace around him right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, so it's I, environmental I more than yeah, anything. More than more than anything else, I haven't the the only you know working off of your your you know what you just put down as a as a potential right, like it, like it could be uh, a reaction to something he's doing. He's not doing much. <laughs> Yeah, like, like I, I think that it would be a reaction to him leaving Winterfell. You know, like like oh, interesting, like okay. not standing up to his honor as the head of the North or or whatever that might be. But but I don't He's know. He's dabbling in Southern affairs and it brings uh, me back to in idea. places that he shouldn't be in. Yeah, and and even still, this idea maybe honor is just this like you know just burns through the hearts of all in the best of ways, right? Burns as a as a, as a as a blazing fire in the hearts of all Winterfell men and to right. leave the North of Winterfell is to leave the, the compass, the moral compass of honor. You know, uh, in support of that, I think it was last week at last episode where the last stark dream we saw was Sansa's dream, which was mm-hmm. her with lady and lady similarly was looking at her not with anger, not with violence, but with sadness. And right. that maybe there's this reflection through this avatar of the North through this avatar of Starks of you're, you're in the wrong place. You're doing the wrong things. Yeah, but with that said, I am hard pressed on that. I did find it just to be more like scenario and situation totally fair. around a, a, a nasty dream during a nasty time, uh, much more than than a comment about who who Ned was and what he was going through. Um, however, with that said, Ned wakes from his dream. There's not a lot more pointed at this dream, and he is uh, being called by some of the the uh, 
the services, the servants of the king saying, hey, the king is here and wants to see you. Yeah. Uh, Robert's Ned, back. Robert's back. And Ned says, basically is like, great, be there in a moment. He's like, finally, this man's back. He took way longer than he should have been. Uh, and go figure that he would call me in the middle of the night. And then uh, he he there's there's a few things that happen. I mean, he, like nothing of note to me. I made one mark here that I wanted to bring up as a question to you. But basically, he gets dressed and he goes over to where the king is in the king's bedroom, yeah. basically. That said, there is a comment that I did want to ask you a question of. Uh, he makes, you know, as he's going, he's kind of noticing some of the people that he's passing. Uh, and he says to himself uh, internally, three men in white cloaks. Uh, and a strange chill went through him. Yeah. And I was wondering, is that an allusion back to the tower, the three I think so. guardsmen there? Yeah, you you cut out a word here. Three men in white cloaks, he thought, remembering. Right. So I think this is just another moment where this, this trauma that he, like whatever it is that happened in this story that's been sitting with him is once again being brought to the forefront of his mind hmm. by literally just passing three members of the king's guard and that that shoots him back to that day um but yeah no you nailed it in terms of making that connection that fight was against three king's guard members who were wearing the white cloaks and that's kind of how that scene began with the three men in white cloaks so something you know waking up from the dream which clearly was a reference to it and then coming out into the waking world and seeing something which is also a reference to it i can see how that would trigger a, a thought in him I do want to stress something that I said before. I said this just about Liana and, and the pale blue roses and the promise and all this. Uh, I said it, and I think it like like I did say it tongue in cheek, but I do mean it seriously. As a reader, I am getting a little annoyed with this. I get it. There's things that you haven't, you, George R. R. Martin, have given me hints towards, but have given me nothing else towards, as far as I can tell. Right. It's like either share or shut up. <laughs> well, like, no, this is this is this is your job, Michael. This is not the author's job. This is your job as our first time reader. And if you're going to bring us back to that, I'm I'm going to put you on the spot here. We have gotten a lot of hints. This has been a recurring theme. This is clearly on Ned's mind for a reason. Mm -hmm. This is something that he's been thinking about. We've gotten recurring references to this scene since the beginning of the book. It's accelerated pretty aggressively over the last few chapters. And it's included a dream sequence that seems to be a recreation of that scene. Why is this so forefront in Ned's mind, what is going on with this? That that is, what's going on around him that's bringing this up in front of him? I have no idea. Okay, no idea. Like like, does it have to do with espionage? Does it have to do with lineage? Does it have to do with, uh, you know, the 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 intrigue happening down at King's Landing? Does it have to do with the relationship that Robert thought that he would have with Liana that isn't actually like like wasn't real, you know, to the to the extent that Robert wanted it to be or whatever mm -hmm. it might be or you know, the, and I mean that in terms of like Robert saying things like my love for her is eternal and I would have always been faithful and Liana like knowing that Liana's comment right. is like that's not really who he is. Yeah, and the the reference from the crypts way back at the very beginning where Ned was like I don't, I don't think you knew her like you mm -hmm. thought you knew her if you think she shouldn't be buried here. Uh yeah, no, that's that's all good references. You know, the the most significant thing that's happening here, really the only thing that's happening here because he kind of just listed generic labels, espionage, lineage, mm -hmm. all of these things, but the thrust of the plot right now and the thrust of what Ned is dealing with is the succession crisis is the issue of the Lannisters of Cersei Lannister and her children. So, you know, if there's anything he's dwelling on, look, maybe he's distracting himself and thinking about this thing from a while back. But to the extent something's connected there, uh, 
that is presumably what's occupying most of his brain power. I will point back to something I think I said a few episodes ago, like like sticking with this this question mark, what's the secret that he's being asked to keep? You know, I think I had brought it up, but, you know, bastard Jon Snow, is this the bastard of, you know, Lyanna and Robert, maybe, right? Is this the true heir okay. to the king? But I will say, though, that, like, I would think that if it was, this would be a big thing on Ned's mind, given the revelations around, you know, the the Lannister children, right? Like the Cersei well, kids. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Robert's kid, presumably Robert would know something about that if Leanna, like, would Ned well, have hidden the Ned bastard from him? Secret. Uh, is that the Well, Robert would at least know he had had sex with Leanna already. Oh, like, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe not. We did hear from Cersei that, you know, sometimes he forgets, but... Yeah, but maybe they had sex anyway. Maybe they had sex lots of times. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. It's... Okay. I'll add to, and and this has just been something that burns on me all the time, and it's not related directly to this chapter by any means. But again, that second character that Arya overheard chapters and chapters ago, uh, who was talking with Illyrio, I I I consistent, I constantly rack my brain like throughout the weeks, weeks. Who could this be? And I think back, and I go through the chapters in my mind, and I flip through the book, and like. I don't know. Like it's, it can't, I, I have to assume it's not a character that I'm seeing regularly. He's not okay. somebody that's like popping up all, you know, it's not Baelish, right? right. Like it's not, it's not okay. Varys, uh, presumably or whatever. Like, like it didn't look like Varys, right? Like, like in the way he was described. No, he certainly did not. And so with, with all of that said, like, I, I work very hard to not Google it. <laughs> like, I, I work real hard to not like look it up. But with that said, this is something that has occurred once this, this showing of this stranger and not shown up again. And yet these pale blue flowers and Liana and all this shows up like three times a chapter. <laughs> like, like, yeah. It's like, Whoa, I don't feel like it's any, the times that it's revealed is helping me understand it better. I just know that this is something that keeps coming up for Ned and I don't, don't understand it and it's bothering me. Yeah. I mean, I think you're you made an interesting point somewhere deep in that rant. Uh <laughs> where the idea that maybe there is an heir, uh, because the what we're dealing with is a succession crisis. So maybe mm -hmm. there is an heir somewhere that Ned knows about and needs to be thinking about, you know, how do we deal with that? How do we bring that about? Is an interesting thought. Uh there's certainly the mystery of who Jon Snow's mother is that could contribute to that in some way. Um, but it's not totally clear how that would make any more sense than Gendry or, you know, yeah. Bera or any of the other things that have come well, about or how that would work. And that's the thing, too, by the way, because as we talk about lineage and heritage and all of that sort of stuff, like we know that bastards don't get nobody owes a bastard anything. Mm -hmm. And none of this changes the Jon Snow's, you know, title of being a bastard. So, fuck. <laughs> maybe there was like an immaculate conception somewhere you know does that count as a bastard unclear well from my perspective was, uh... <laughs> you weren't married <laughs> <laughs> okay but with that said ned ned is now dressed and makes his way over to robert's uh room where he is called in and things are awkward there cersei's there many oh, people awkward it's just an uncomfortable it's clearly not a okay, regular yeah, situation yeah. It's just um, a funny word choice considering the context. The king still wore his boots, laying in bed, his mud-covered boots sticking out from sort of the bottom. Uh, and we find that that Robert Baratheon is dying. Mm -hmm. uh, he has been gored by a boar. 
yes. uh, that he was out there hunting. Uh, I'm going to start going out of a chronological order to give some like some, some context it. here. But uh, we find out that this is not it's not rare for Robert to face a boar on his own. It's not, you know, right. usually he, in fact, every time he's been successful, totally uh, checks out on his character too. Yeah. He, he told everybody else to stand down. He was, he was going to be the one to get it. And he took his spear or something. It was waiting for it and ready. And he missed. Yep. We also find that he was quite drunk when this happened, uh, you know, just like really wasted for this particular thing. But I, the thing that I want to stress is that like, nobody like stabbed him in his tent and right. you know then said a boar got him like this clearly was a situation that happened out there yeah uh, we have renly and pycel here renly was with him as was sir barristan outside we learned they they watched this happen mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> there's no fakes going on here and i just want to stress too that it is stressed to us that he is dying without a doubt he is dying like, like yeah. it's impressive that he's survived this long um but with this said uh Robert tells everybody in the room to leave except Ned. I want to talk to Ned, basically. Uh, Cersei puts up a little bit of a fuss, but he says, get out. Uh, and everyone does. And he's left with Ned. And the two of them begin to chat. And basically, Robert has this sort of touching end of life moment where he basically says, man, like, I've, I've just kind of made a mess of things. And, you know, the stupid boar got me, but you've been right about some things. Killing the Daenerys girl is not who we are and what we do. And I want you to rescind that. I want you to write down, this was a big thing. And I got to say, it's funny, my, my heart started to pump a little bit. He was like, Ned, write down my last words. And, uh, you know, Ned does. And then he's like, you know, we should get a witness to sign this. And I was like, oh, no, if Robert dies right now, I'll be pissed. But, he yeah. was, you know, the people come back in and they sealed it, signed and witnessed. That's one of those things where having seen too many movies where, oh, write down my last words, and then they croak before anything. Yeah. I, I think about every time I watch a TV show or a movie and characters are driving and talking to each other, one oh in the passenger God. seat, I one in the driver's seat, I'm 100% certain they're going to get into a crash because the actors always look at each other and 99% of the times, it's like a normal conversation <laughs> that is just, oh, we're going to have a conversation. Let's do it in the car. And I'm just, I've seen that one percent is like 10 movies at this point where yep they just get blindsided by something right. like uh remember the titans is the one oh. that really like traumatized me brutal uh yeah didn't need that <laughs> in my mind right now thank you sorry yeah um, no happy times uh <laughs> anyway they're, they're chatting uh the king asks ned to write down his last words uh you know last kind of commands and things the daenerys thing comes up he says we need to rescind that i don't want her us to go after her she's just a kid mm -hmm. He also says, I want to say that you, Ned, should serve as, what's the term, Lord Regent and Protector of the Realm until yeah. my son comes of age. So he'll he'll run things in the king's name until, you know, the, the king reaches majority. Ned has a moment saying, well, maybe I should tell him about Joffrey and Cersei now, uh, but decides not to. He's in so much pain. Robert's in so much pain already. Why add? Um, but he also does, Ned does, change a little bit of the wording that Robert asked him to put down. Uh, he changes from what it says is, uh, and I'm trying to hear, yeah, do you hereby command? Yeah, so he changes, the king says, uh, you know, to rule in my stead until my son Joffrey does come of age. And he he changes that instead of my son Joffrey, Ned writes down my heir. Yeah. Uh, and then feels terrible about it, which I just thought was stupid because Ned's stupid. Yeah. 
No, I think it's interesting to note in terms of Ned's character, he thinks the lies we tell for love, may the gods forgive me. And I think that that's such a wonderful way to say things because this is, he feels soiled by the lie and chooses to stick with it anyway. It's not the fact that he changed what Robert said. It's that he could have, he could have absolved himself of all of this by simply telling Robert and then Robert would fly into a rage and be horribly angry, but Robert would no longer give the throne to Joffrey in his will. And then Ned wouldn't have to lie. Right. Uh, and it's the choice to lie and violate that side of his honor out of love for Robert and wanting to spare him that pain that I think is really nice. It's it, it He feels wrong for doing it, you know, like he's violating some sort of categorical imperative in a, in a Kantian sense and does it anyway. Uh, and I think that's really sweet. Hmm. Well, I've been watching the good place again. Sweet, so. as it, <laughs> sweet as it may be, the scene continues. Uh, those who were asked to leave come back into the room are required to come back. This, the letter is signed and sealed and witnessed and all of these things are there. Cersei does not come back, to which Ned assumes that she's fleeing per his right you know his his uh uh his instructions i do want to mention right before they come back in robert in his end of life come to jesus moment uh says you're a bad liar ned for saying that i need to stick around the realm knows what a wretched king i've been bad as eris the gods spare me and ned in his honest self loving self says not so bad as eris like yeah you were you were crap but you're you pretty terrible yeah. <laughs> but you weren't insane <laughs> and robert it's really touching it's a really sweet moment between friends he, he says this one putting you in charge giving you the realm after i die that's the one they'll say i got right you'll hate it worse than i did but you'll do well and i think that's really sweet hmm. um i didn't care like yeah you're right it's probably sweet i I didn't care about the friendship for the, yeah, the I guess death like, of the close friend. Well, I'm just I'm just impatient at this point. I'm like, I, <laughs> we're, we're now officially into the 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 500 pages, and I'm like, give me answers, give me. You know, the Cersei answer came last week. You know, the, the lineage thing, the John Aaron question, and I, now I just want it to flow. I want answers to flow, and I'm right. sure they will. But this is as good a moment as any. Some mysteries. Continue over the course of books. I'm going to punch you in the throat. Some uh, of them have not been answered yet. Welcome to our I'm world. I'm starting to waiting, understand. I'm starting to waiting a decade for the next book. Okay. Okay. So that do said, not be overly hopeful here. Uh, you will get some, though. Uh, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, with it said, uh, the king basically passes away. Uh, I'm sorry, he doesn't pass away right now. We don't actually see that at all. He goes to sleep. He drinks the milk of the yes. puppy uh, and basically falls asleep and, and is waiting to die. Uh, conversations happen between those that are there. There's sort of a loving, you know, uh, touching notes about this king. Renly mentions how strong this man was to go against the boar the way he did and, and hang on to life the way he did with his guts hanging out of him. Yeah, he uh, he specifically tells the story. Robert got gutted, so the boar has him ripped open and on the ground and is kind of like savaging at him. And Robert pulled his dagger out and stabbed it in the head, which, right. you know, for all of the shit we've seen and him being an atrocious king, it kind of gives you a glimpse of the charisma that brought people over to his side in the mm -hmm. rebellion and made him king in the first place. This is this is that extraordinary moment, that heroic moment, especially in the society that loves strength and killing and being in a soldier and all of that. You can see how people would want to follow this image 
You have Sir Barristan who says, man, like, this is my fault. I should have been there and protected him. To which Ned Over is, two. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> to, which, uh, to which Ned offers some kind words. No, this is something that he did all the time was, you know, you can't hold this one against yourself, which I just thought was kind. Uh, and then uh, we have this wonderful moment where someone says, I wonder, Sir Barristan, who gave the king this wine? It's Varys. Uh, it's Varys, Varys kind of pops up. Yeah. Varys says, uh, comes to ask this, and sure, like, like in true Varys fashion, he kind of like appears from the shadows and is like, oh, oh hello. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but he he points out, he directs attention to the fact that not only was the king drunk, he was well supplied with wine. And by none other than some of the Lannister stewards who were appointed, actually specifically the ones who he had sent on a wild goose chase for yeah. a breastplate plate stretcher, I think it was. Yeah, that's that's what it was. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and, and Varys is quick to make sure that the finger is pointing just a little bit, if only for Ned's sake. Ned, who Varys knows is in, in you know part of this intrigue about the Lannisters and All things. Right. I, I don't. I like that read. I think that's right. It's worth saying that that Varys's only stated reason for bringing this up, he says it explicitly. I just hope the kid isn't beating himself up too much. It wasn't his fault, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the king was drunk, but the king's always drunk. Like I, I'm worried about the kid. Uh, that's why he wanted to ask who gave him the wine because Varys is a good-hearted, charitable thinker who's concerned about the well-being of this child. Yes. Well, Varys is a caring, gentle, <laughs> loving soul, as we've come to understand him. <laughs> you don't seem to believe me. Uh, with that said, Ned kind of takes his leave. Uh, and, and Well, first he, he tells Varys uh, the king changed his mind oh, that's on right. killing Danny, so rescind the order. And Varys is like, what do you mean rescind an order? We don't have texting. Right. Um, but like, I'll do what I can and, uh, and kind of scurries away to deal with that. I, uh, and that goes back to the comments that I made on the last chapter, right? Like this might be part of an inciting incident now for Daenerys to really get laser focused on coming back to King's Landing. If there are, you know, people out there who are trying to murder her now, it's like, oh, time to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's one point before we transition into the next scene that I just want to mm-hmm. want to briefly reference because it's a bit of a mea culpa for myself. As Ned walks out of the chamber for the conversation with, with Cersei and Renly, and uh, Pysel, I guess Cersei's not there anymore, he thinks to himself, uh, Robert asked me to take care of his kids. Um, thank God I'll be able to do that because of the bastards. And he kind of lists off a bunch of them. And he mentions Maya Stone in the veil as one ah, of Robert's right. bastards. And I saw that and was like, crap, I should have double checked. Because if I had realized it was coming up a chapter later, I would I would not have brought it to your not attention last it. week. <laughs> uh, so that one's on me. I spoil, spoiled that a little bit for you. Um, but just a little note, we got some confirmation that that was, in fact, Robert's kid. Well, don't worry. I didn't even notice it when I read it. <laughs> so like, right. um, uh, but with that said, uh, Ned Ned does take his leave, and he is confronted by Lord Renly. on his. Uh, so as Ned is walking back to his own chambers, he's confronted by Lord Renly. And Lord Renly says, hey, let, let me talk to you without your men for a second. Come here, let's chat. Uh, and they do chat. And Renly... Uh, Renly dives into some strategy. He's got some intrigues. He says, man, now is the time to strike. Let's grab Joffrey. Let's grab this kid and hold him and he will be yours. You know, whoever controls the king, that's who everybody's going to have to listen to, right? Like uh, the man who holds the king holds the kingdom. Seems like a like an aphorism of theirs, effectively. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, let's let's move first. So we'll be in charge. And yeah, exactly. And Ned basically says, 
you know, Robert's not even dead yet. There's no way I'm going to do this. And Renly kind of says, you're kind of stupid, aren't you? Like, like, and I think that it's the same kind of comment that, that, that uh, Baelish has been giving and Varys has been giving him too. There's no such thing as like coasting in this situation, in these politics. There's no such, and, and I think even Ned reminds himself of what Cersei said, right? Like in the game of, uh, in the game of Thrones, you either win or you die. Like yeah. there's no, there's no standing still here. And Ned realizes too. So, so Ned kind of brushes off Renly and says, there's no way we're doing this terrible idea i'm not going to do this uh we're not going to jump into it uh renly is sort of like listen like if you're not going to make a move cersei and lannisters are definitely making moves and this might make it too late for us to do something but sure enough that's how it stands um yeah i think it's interesting again, at the... it just sucks <laughs> no i i i think it's interesting at the end of this conversation as he walks away from renly he seems to have second thoughts He's really doubting himself and this choice. And then the next part of the chapter, I think, is kind of him backtracking on this decision a little bit, mm -hmm. not specifically to work with Renly, but we'll get to it to work with Baelish. But he has this thought here. He had no taste for these intrigues and there was no honor in threatening children. And yet, if Cersei elected to fight rather than flee, he might well have need of Renly's hundred swords and more besides. He's terrified he's getting this yeah. wrong. And so, you know, there's one place where his insistence, we don't kill children and I will quit this job over it. We're in a bit more of a gray area here. He he simply doesn't know how to do what's right here. He doesn't know how to do what's right and and be right, be correct. Yeah. Uh, so with that said, he immediately, and, and you just even alluded to it too, but he turns to some of the men that he's with and says, get me Littlefinger, do whatever it mm -hmm. takes, but bring me Littlefinger right now. He then also turns to another one of his men uh, and says, let's let's make sure that these boats are ready to go. I want my daughters out of here. And while you're going, I need you to make a, a short stop by Dragonstone where uh, where Stannis is. Because like we had talked about last time on, on, on the podcast, right, is that the heir to the throne is now Stannis. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, and, and so he says, uh, you know, I need you to take a letter to Stannis for me. And he sits down and basically writes a letter saying, we, we need to talk. <laughs> we need to get on the same page. Well, he seems to explicitly put in the, we don't get the text of the letter, but it mm -hmm. seems like he tells Stannis, you know, that the son, the Rob, the king's sons are not his, you're the heir, because he thinks men would whisper afterward that Eddard Stark had betrayed his king's friendship and disinherited his sons. So it seems this is, this is pretty explicitly, hey, Stannis, you're the king now. And then he thinks to himself, he hopes the gods and Robert will know better that, that in the afterlife, they'll understand that he was in fact in the right. This wasn't some power play for him to screw over the Baratheon family, but rather him acting correctly in accordance with the facts. And he seals that letter and hands it off and they all go about their way and who should show up, but Littlefinger, because that's exactly who he called for. Yes. Uh, and they get into a conversation. I actually wanted you to kind of take us through this conversation. If it's all right. Sure. Because uh, there's, I, it basically, I'll start us off with just saying that uh, <laughs> Ned basically says, you know, the king's close to death and you'll never believe this, but his kids are not his. To which yeah. Baelish says, <laughs> I'm so surprised. He said yeah. without sounding surprised at all. And I was like, <laughs> it's, it's really funny phrasing. I, yeah, you don't seem shocked at all. So we've seen some references to maybe other people at court knowing about this with Tyrion. There have certainly been situations with Baelish where it seemed like he's in the know. And this seems pretty clear confirmation that this was uh, the people playing games and having spies out picked up on it. Um, so, you know, that, that raises some interesting questions for how many people knew and how widespread of a, of a secret is this really? And where are people positioning themselves accordingly? 
But this conversation is more intrigues, which Ned is just not ready for because, you know, there's a succession crisis. We have heirs who are not really heirs and everyone we've seen it seems to be maneuvering. We saw Varys coming, popping out, making insinuations about the death of the king. Renly showed up and tried to get Ned on his side. And now Baelish is trying to do the same thing. It starts off with Littlefinger showing off how much information he has. He congratulates Ned on, on being the Lord Protector. And Ned's like, shit, how do you know already? And... <laughs> Ned's he literally says, holding the letter sealed in his hand that says this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but Littlefinger was just playing him more. Varys hinted as much. Uh, and also, you just confirmed it, importantly. And we get Ned, you know, really reflecting on the fact that he is outmatched in this game. Damn Varys and his little birds. Catelyn spoke truly. The man has some black art. I do not trust him. Mm-hmm. Bale says, great, you're figuring it out. Don't trust anybody. But the, the specific conversation... Baelish, like Renly, says, we need to act now and secure our positions. And he says, you don't want Stannis. Don't give it to Stannis. Stannis is terrible. Nobody's going to like him. It's going to plunge us into war. Pretty much people who fought against Robert are going to be worried that Stannis is holding a grudge. People who didn't fight against Robert, but, you know, maybe have other reasons to worry about him. Stannis is rigid. Stannis is strict. And Stannis is going to be a problem if you put him in charge. And he does contrast that, too, with how Robert was very forgiving, very forgiving people who stood with uh, the Targaryens, but then, you know, kneeled afterwards, he forgave people like exactly what you're saying. And, uh, you know, that that Stannis is going to come in and be a very strict, strict ruler. Yeah. And, you know, we've also heard about Stannis's military exploits during the rebellion. So it goes to figure, and, and Littlefinger references this, that some of those opponents he had, you know, he was besieged in Storm's End for a long period of time. The people besieging him are still alive and were welcomed back into the realm. Is King Stannis really going to be forgiving? Mm-hmm. So Baelish says, you know, it'll be bad for us. It'll be bad for the realm. Just put Joffrey on the throne have the regency he's only 12 you can run things for a few years and then if we need to take care of joffrey later we'll take care of joffrey and this of course is the red line for for ned the bright line we do not kill children Mm -hmm. uh and so he rejects baelish too he says absolutely not we're not playing any of these games there's no choice to make he pretty much says uh because the law says stannis is king I like uh, uh, Littlefinger's reaction is, for a moment, I did not remember that I was talking to a Stark. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Ned instead says, okay, I've given you my instructions about who's taking over here, um, but that doesn't mean he's just going to sit around and let things happen. He is going to be proactive in trying to bring about the desired result. Maybe not the most strategic result, but the one that he believes is right, and he's going to take actions. Specifically, I need men. Renly just came and offered me his. He actually doesn't share that with Littlefinger, but, you know, thought process. Mm-hmm. Renly came and offered me his men. I need more than that. Baelish says there are tons of people at court who don't necessarily love the Lannisters. Why don't you talk to them? And Ned says, no, it's not going to be enough. Not who enough. knows if they'll even be loyal to me? I need the gold cloaks. He says they're sworn to protect the king's peace. And Littlefinger here, in response, takes his advantage. He makes his play. Uh, but when the queen proclaims one king in the hand another, whose peace do they protect? Mm-hmm. He answers his own question, the man who pays them, which is Baelish. Baelish says, if you're putting me on your team, I will get you the gold cloaks. There's a, a great little exchange right at the end here where yeah. Littlefinger once again pokes some fun at Ned. And he says, you can't even ask me explicitly to go bribe the gold cloaks for you. And I want to make you say it, but I won't. I'll do it. I'll go get them for you. 
they'll be on your side and ready to fight. Well, and that's that's where we wrap up. That's the end of this chapter. It's uh, you know, once again, we had talked about this, I think, a couple episodes ago, and and I, I had brought this up, and I'll and I'll say it again here. It really does, you know, after so much that that the book started with and went through, and the intrigue and the John Aaron questions and and that mystery, uh, we now seem to be into the next act, if you will, where the stage continues to be set. The king is dying, if not basically dead already. We know that the Lannister kids are not. Not only do we know that the Lannister kids are not really related in part of the the, the bloodline to the throne, but we know that mm-hmm. Cersei knows that Ned knows this. Yeah, uh, we know that everybody's kind of getting themselves into position now. Uh, I'm very curious to see, like, if the powder keg is being packed right now. I'm very curious to see what the spark is to blow it up. Uh, I, I I go back to like I'm 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 straining myself to go back into my amazing memory of the tv show (laughs) i you know where i know i know how season one of the tv show ends right you know there's no not knowing that i do not remember how we got there from here i i don't remember at all how that well that'll be fun then so i'm excited to see where it goes i have some questions for you both about this chapter and about the future so the first one is Obviously, you referenced this. Varys insinuates that the squire, Lancel Lannister, was involved uh, or got the king drunk. What's the extent of the insinuation there? And what are you thinking? Was there some sort of intent? Was it Robert drinks a lot and this kid was serving him and like wasn't incentivized to cut him off? Uh, was somebody was somebody doing something on purpose surrounding this? Is that what Varys is saying? And, and what do you think? You know... I don't know because I, I again like like even if we went back three or four chapters ago three or four neds ago right like mm-hmm. like I was thinking about this when when Robert went out on the hunt my mind immediately went back to the TV show I knew something was going to happen to Robert I knew that this was going to happen but it's it's hard to think that being gored by a boar was premeditated uh given Robert and who his character was and given this tiny servant of a Lannister character that we've met before too if Robert wanted wine he was going to get wine I, right, I think that's for to, sure trying to to come up with like a planned murder of a king by hoping he was drunken too drunk to do what he's done it's very not a great before. plan it's it's really not so I want to I want to remind you of one thing on this Aside from it being a good plan, a bad plan, we know that there, or at least Varys has said, there has been an attempt on Robert's life during this book, which was the melee, which was Cersei manipulating him to enter the melee in which something would happen. Now, it was stated that, you know, she would have somebody on the inside who would accidentally kill him. Obviously, you can't do that with a boar. Uh, That doesn't really work. But the plans, the, the operation would be very similar here in terms of put him put robert into a position that has some inherent danger so that he can die there with some plausible deniability i i agree and 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 i mean cersei was pretty confident during her chat with ned you know she didn't seem very troubled by it i assume that she had a sense assume now looking backwards that she must have had a sense that something was going to happen but again with that said like having a man on the inside to murder something like like the king you know Tricking right, of course. To go into a situation where there's a murderer waiting is very different than getting the king drunk and hoping that he gets 
gourd. Um, no, that makes perfect sense. There's one other point just to briefly mention here. We get a reference when Ned arrives to the king's bedchamber that Cersei is there. It's the middle of the night. Ned gets woken up. Cersei is there uh, with her hair all tussled, but her eyes don't look asleep at all, mm-hmm. um, as though she was trying to look like she had been sleeping, but had, in fact, been waiting up or something along those lines. <laughs> that doesn't in any way negate what it is you're talking about in terms of the likelihood and, and the plausibility of it. But I just wanted to mention it. We get... yeah. Varys's hint is pretty explicit. We get a lot of things pointing us in that direction. Yeah, I agree. Although to your question, your specific question, I just have a hard time thinking that this servant Lannister is going to come up again. Like, yeah. like you know. Well, we shall see. He like, He's a squire. Know, he just, to be to be clear, this is this is still a nobility position. Uh, yeah, but so was so sure was what's, what's his name? So was that that guy at the tournament who was murdered by by Gregor Clegane. That's true. Uh, you know, right away, like like, like Sir I, Hugh. Yeah, yeah, he was not a Lannister, uh, which is a crucial distinction, Ooh. not as important. But uh, mm-hmm. no, you're right. I did want to ask too, by the way, we didn't get into it during the chapter, but uh, I think the king mentioned very quickly that the justice to Gregor Clegane was carried out. No, 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 no. He was just saying uh, he brought it up as getting the order and was like, Ned, I can't believe you couldn't not mess with me on the hunt. And then we got a brief reference to the fact that he did not pass the message along to Sander. So Um, Sander Clegane actually got back to the city and learned once he got there. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Which Robert thought was a fun prank. So, I mean, you already referenced this. I'm sure your answer will be that you have no idea. You, You have no thoughts. But so we have here, Renly is maneuvering. Varys is maybe doing things. Littlefinger is maneuvering on Ned's behalf. Cersei, Ned thinks, maybe fled, but maybe is also maneuvering. So where are things shaking out, uh, you know, just in the very near future? Is Ned going to be able to, you know, put Cersei on the run, I guess, is one of the options. Is the message going to get to Stannis? Is Stannis going to show up in, in King's Landing soon? What are the next steps for us in this Game of Thrones? Well, interestingly enough, I wonder, and and I'm going to blame you for bringing this up to begin with, right? But like full circle all the way around to the beginning of the chapter is maybe this is what that dream had to do with. Ned is finding himself more and more in a position to not enact the honorable things that he wants to, but to help maintain a very awful yet delicate situation. So, you know, what's happening right now is, and I'm just repeating what you said, right? Like, Varys has always done his own thing. Baelish is on, you know, Littlefinger's on Team Ned for now, but who knows where that's about to go. Uh, Cersei and the Lannisters have been piling up an army for quite some time now. Stannis has been piling up his army for a little while now as well. Like, and we still have what was just happening in the Vale uh, and and, and Tyrion. Uh, You know, and, and so you have like all of these, everybody's getting angry everybody's getting a lot of weapons to the area and Ned is stuck in the middle of all of this, literally in the middle of King's Landing, trying to hope that like, like King's Landing doesn't shatter into a million pieces. And it crucially, would, don't yeah, forget, but, has sent a lot of his men away to do other things. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's desperate to get his daughters out of King's Landing. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know where the letter to Stannis is going to go. I don't, I don't know any of this, but I feel like, you know, everything is so tense and so taut right now that the slightest misstep on anybody, you know, anybody's uh, from anybody's side is just a war. It's just a war. And when a war happens, you got to let it finish and then you figure out who won. You know? Yeah. No, that uh, that seems totally fair. Do you have any final thoughts to leave us with or should we wrap it up? 
Uh, no, I think that, that, you know, again, I've said this for a little bit, I think, but like the macro story is becoming really fun and interesting to me. What's happening with Daenerys? What's this intrigue with Illyrio and, uh, and mystery person, you know, who, who's this, this absent character. And I mean that more than mystery person, right? Tyrion is also brought up, like there's somebody else who's playing this game right now. Who's not a parent. Right. Uh, and, and I'm very curious about that. But with that said, I assume we'll get there when we get there. I'm just wondering who's going to set off this powder keg. <laughs> like what have, what's going to happen once the dust clears? Well, we'll see next week. We, uh, we're doing two chapters again. It's going to be John 6 back up north. And then rounding out our streak of Ned chapters with Eddard 14. Let's go. I'll talk to you then. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, A Game of Thrones, John 6 and Eddard 14. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast and tell us your feedbacks or thoughts on Twitter at bros, B-R-O-S with banners. Thanks as always for listening.